Scoop being Reg. I'm Scoop. I'm Reg. Here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we are here at NBA All-Star Weekend, talking to legends, talking to people who have a story to tell in, in the studio, a.k.a. our sweetest. None other than Anthony Avent uh, played on the 1989 Seton Hall University championship team and was, if I'm not mistaken, you were 15th overall pick in the 1991 NBA draft. First of all, welcome to Scoop Me and Reg. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me here, and we're going to enjoy this all-star weekend and all it has to offer. What have you done since you've been here? Well, got with the legends, welcome reception. Um, always a good time to get up with the guys, catch up, rehash. Um, just showing love, good vibes and energy. So that's about all. Got in on Friday and, and also went to TNT Kenny Smith party and got to see the god Rakim. Mm. So, you know, that was, a, that was a great, great event he put on at the NASCAR Museum. Scoopy and Reg talking to Anthony Avon in this episode of Scoopy Reg is brought to you by Catalyst uh, Impact Protection Case. You got to check that out. We got some sitting here at product yeah. right now. Yeah, uh, they they got a whole bunch of stuff like shameless plug, but of course, <laughs> of course, of course. Anthony, you um have played for an array of teams. You talked about Kenny Smith, uh, a guy that played with Kenny Smith. Uh, during that Houston Rockets era was Chucky Brown. He's one of the most, I guess, traded person in the history of the NBA. You don't have that many uh, teams, but your the teams that you've played for um, really interest me. Number one, uh, the Vancouver Grizzlies. I remember growing up watching 21 Jump Street. Hmm. That was actually taped in Vancouver. Okay. What were the early days of, number one, that, that mint teal green – Grizzlies mm-hmm. jersey with looking at Bryant Big Country Reeves did mm-hmm. it for me. But I mean, honestly, what was it like in Vancouver during that era? Uh, Vancouver was a beautiful city, still is a beautiful city. Um, and, and the team, the guys, most were veterans. So as far as coming together and being able to adapt, it was pretty, pretty simple. But the city was beautiful, the food was incredible, and, and the guys were all cool guys. So. It, it was a great transition in terms of being in a new city in a different country. That era, uh, you had the Raptors who came in as well. Mm-hmm. Biggest difference between Toronto and Vancouver? It's hard for me to say. Um, I didn't know Toronto prior. Okay. Um, obviously, didn't, haven't and still don't really know <laughs> Toronto. Um, I would probably say Toronto being that is on the east side – Mm-hmm. of the states um and obviously everybody talk about the energy that it's a beautiful city but speaking for vancouver being on the west side mm-hmm. i would say it's probably more of its twin for sure you um were on that 94 95 uh, orlando magic team uh shaq penny hardaway nick anderson uh brian hill three uh, was the head coach dennis scott horace grant horace grant ron shaw yeah Keep going. Yeah. Yeah, some horses over there, yeah. <laughs> to me, um, that NBA championship uh, between the Houston Rockets and the Orlando Magic uh, was mm-hmm. different because when I look at Shaq and I look at Penny, um, I really saw the future, number one with Penny, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the evolution of the point forward. Uh, and Shaq, a guy that was like – had Duncan's build at the time but could just – nobody could guard him. No. Um, do you ever look at that team and say, what if – yeah, you have to. Um, anytime you have a player of Shaq's dominance and then to be able to see what he was able to do as he continued throughout his career, um, 
Then you look at the veterans that were around that team, still pretty much young in their prime. You have to look at the what if factor. Um, but that's exactly what it is, a what if. When you talk about the what if, um, I, I often look at uh, Russell Westbrook, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Durant, um, and them being young. Even even um, James Harden, that Oklahoma City mm-hmm. Thunder team just had studs. Do you look at or compare that Magic team as more of a what if in comparison to Oklahoma City? Or do you think of a what if like the Dallas Mavericks with Jim Jackson, Jason Kidd, and Jamal Mashburn? Um, not really either or. Why? Um, I look at I look at the makeup of that team. We knew the ball was going in the shack, yeah. and we knew Penny was that alpha, alpha male player out on the perimeter, and Dennis Scott lined up at the three. So the roles were very defined. That team just really fell to a lack of experience. Hmm. But that team coming back again with that experience eventually would have captured a title versus um, some of the conflicts you may have on other teams when it comes to chemistry or where's the ball going in this situation or that situation. That wasn't really the issue in Orlando. Is you it feel like there's younger more players? to do with time. Sure. Just staying together. That, that would have cured that. I don't know if those other teams, by staying together, would have ever got them over the hump. And I think we've, we've watched them over time with Durant and um, Westbrook, they've had plenty of years together to get over the hump. That Magic team never had those amount of years with Shaq and Penny and that nucleus to eventually get to that next level. We, we've we had conversations uh, outside of the podcast, of course, about the role social media plays now in, in the league versus back then. So um, we, not so long ago, uh, someone uh, associated with a podcast we're producing spoke to Muggsy Bowes about the NBA lockout and how social media would have played a role versus like you know not having social media and basically how players negotiate now with recent news about like you know team trades and the way stuff like that leaks how do you think that would have affected the way players negotiated in the past or the way players interact with fans or news was was basically received? I think it would have been pretty much identical to what you see today. Guys who may not be um, on the Players Association board when it comes to having a voice in the new negotiations would have used their own platform to share their opinion with the public. And anytime you negotiate and you bring the public into that space, um, it's not always a good thing. Most negotiations should be held in closed doors. But once you allow the public, especially when you're talking about a sport where the public feels they are part of it, they have a role in it, um, those voices, those opinions, they have an impact on both sides, whether it's the player side or the lead side. So it it definitely um, played a role. And with those personalities back then, like Charles Barkley, et cetera, <laughs> yeah. Dennis Rodman, no, um, I would have definitely followed him. You have some him. very, very strong personalities that would have lit social media up. Joel Embiid, some could say, is the modern day class clown uh, in the NBA. Uh, has mm-hmm. the media laughing. Uh, you know, he and Russell Westbrook have been going back and forth as of as of late. Would you, in your experience watching Embiid, see a similarity between he and Shaq? 
There's a similarity, but it's organic. Um, this is just his nature. I don't think um, someone that does what Shaq or what Joel does on a regular basis, I don't think you can make that up. <laughs> you know, you you know, this is something that's organic. It's their personality. Um, so, and it's and it's needed in the game um, of entertainment because at the end of the day, it's entertainment. And um, you know, you got a player putting up great numbers, going about his business, but the game today, and um, it, it requires you want to engage the person's personality. You don't always get the person's personality. So you don't necessarily want a whole entire lead of Kawhi Leonard's great players with a great laugh. But you also want <laughs> you want you want the, the fans want to know your personality. So these guys don't mind bringing it front and center. Do you feel like the personalities starting to outshine the actual game though, and the the athleticism and so on and so forth? Not at all. Um, if you're a viewer and you're watching a game. What happens on that court, 48 minutes, is taking place on that court. What happens when the game's over is game's over. But doing a game, you know, it's all in action. It's all in your production. So, and I think Dennis Rodman um, may have proved that best. Yeah. I think he was ahead of his time. Yeah. I think he was right on time. Does I, he, I, I know what you mean yeah. when you say ahead of his time. Yeah. But he was right on time because he, he set the bar. He ushered in the era, I'm going to be who I want to be, off the floor. And he brought the media with him. You know, he's on MTV. You know, he yeah, was, that's true, that's true. He was on covers of magazines. He was playing in movies. So I don't know if he was before his time. I just think he was on time. He reaped the benefits, and he still does. Tell me something. On the court, who's the biggest shit talker? Dennis Rodman, Gary Payton, or Michael Jordan? I'll probably say Gary Payton. Tell and me it, more. It, it was. It's, I say Gary Payton because um, you get him chirping all the time. But most players are really talking to the guys they're guarding. Okay. Um, in the NBA, for the most part, the big men would never – Shit talkers. We played a different style game. It was more physical. It was more close contact all day long. So we had a different, we just had a different, I don't want to say respect, but a different awareness of the style of game we had to play versus guards out on the perimeter. So... I just think from that standpoint, Gary Payton for sure, and you have to be vocal as a point guard, and and he he definitely was vocal. And I would say Gary Payton. Scoop and Reg uh, talking with Anthony Avon, talking NBA, talking a myriad of other things. I want to put a a sticky pad in that because I want to get back to junk talking in a minute. But what I do want to do is I want to talk about your nonprofit. Um, Before uh, we sat down, I did a little research on it for those who uh, are not familiar. Anthony Avent's Make Me a Prodigy. Uh, the mission simply is to use sports engagement as a tool uh, to give youth what they want in order to give them what they need for age. Uh, appropriate development. Uh, Their mission uh, simply is to help youth reach their full potential, uh, and to that end, they infuse STEM, financial literacy, law enforcement, and career exploration programs and sports clinics and camps to increase the chance of producing a well-rounded, 
and productive a member uh, of society or the community. Why make me a prodigy? Um, I think everybody um, has that that special quality in them. It's just a matter of finding out what your gift is and honing in on it. Um, and once you can do that, I don't think there's any kid growing up that don't have that prodigy ability. Mm. I talked to Larry Johnson uh, one time, and he told me about the time that he watched Calvin Murphy play one-on-one in a Payless uh, store in the mall. And that was his first time actually engaging with a local star, him being from mm-hmm. Dallas, Texas. For you, what are, you, what are your early recollections of a, a local person in your community uh, that was an athlete or a celebrity, uh, give it back, and um, how did that impact you? I would say for me, um, in Newark, it, it was really watching the older guys out on the playground. The playground pretty much ruled the game. Um, it was just really watching those guys from afar, um, learning the game, learning the tricks, um, and hoping one day to get out there on the court and play with them. Um, we pretty much took a lot of pride in my neighborhood of knowing that guys like Marvin, Marvin Hagler um, came out of North, Andre Tippett and those guys. Mm-hmm. So we, we sort of used that as a barrier when it comes to sports to want to reach that certain level. So why why the nonprofit? Because I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you have a lot of guys who are involved, but like you know, they might make an appearance, write a check. Mm-hmm. Building a nonprofit so much more involved. It's a day to day thing. What made you want to do that versus like you know simply just writing a check or you know? I'm retired, so I have the time. So the time is important. Um, I think when you have a mission, you need to be front and centered on that mission or you're leaving it up to others to carry out the mission. Hmm. And you know, sometimes if you can identify that group that, that, that sees your vision the way you do, and you wanna support that group, by all means do so. But if it's something you're very passionate about and you know you see the vision clear, and you know where you wanna take it, you might wanna be the one to take the lead. So what, what sparked the inspiration to start the nonprofit? Was it something you always wanted to do and well, you didn't have time? or I understand a lack of resources in, in our communities. Um, and, and having a nonprofit is critical to taking those resources and bringing them all together to support your mission. Um, you can't do this alone. You have to have corporate and community support. So the nonprofit is critical uh, when it comes to doing that. Um, at the same time, understood through sports, it was just a tool. So many kids at a young age are in sports, and that's the greatest time to open up their minds and give them a vision that's, that's far out there that they may not get in school or at home. So if I can pull you together because of sports and open up your mind to see other things that you otherwise wouldn't get an opportunity to be exposed to, by all means, I want to take advantage of that. I don't want to wait until you reach a certain age space where your mind is more closed off or you're just not dreaming anymore. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, like, I went to um, – I attended St. Pat's, which is, like, a high school, mm-hmm. like, you know, pretty well-known for, for basketball. And I was never into basketball mm-hmm. like that before I went to St. Pat's. I mean, I'm still not, like, super mm-hmm. into basketball. But, 
it, it sort of opened my mind to like, you know, learning a little bit more about like, you know, the business behind like, you know, athletics and so on and so forth. Uh, shout out to Coach Savannah out at, at St. Pat's. What what role do you think sports have in in conjunction with with education? Do you do you think it should be more involved when you look at like situations? This might be like too loaded of a question with like um, the the NCAA and the issues with the paying student athletes and compensation and so on and so forth so, to people who might not have options after mm-hmm. they're done playing. So when I created Make Me a Prodigy in Careers in Sports, you're, you're the perfect candidate I was trying to reach. That person that's in school who don't play the game but may like sports or just may be a, a, a witness to the game but don't understand where their place in the game is. So it's not so much about the player that's playing the game as much as it is about those who love the game and don't see a way in the game okay. as a non-player. And when I started looking at and developing um, Make Me a Prodigy, one of the biggest missions were the Korean sports program. Hmm. Because I wanted students who love sports and love medicine to understand there's a marriage between sports and medicine. I wanted that that non-athlete who loved watching sports but was gifted in math to understand there's a place for you through analytics and statistics. I wanted the girls and the boys who love to talk and write to understand there's a journalism field for you. So it was really looking at the whole space and understand these sports is not an elective in school when it comes to education, but if you're already a lover of sports, I want to just use what you were already doing. There's a doing lane for you, even if you don't play. To, to really show you there's a pathway through sports, through your love for sports, tied to your education and higher education. That's the so. So yeah, that was the mission. I'm going to leave the the, the student athletes getting paid thing alone for right now. Why should they be paid? Absolutely. Tell me more. Well, the game has changed. So anytime the games change, the rules must change. So whether it's a corporation, it doesn't matter. When a company goes from grossing 100000 a year to $20 million, from $20 million to $20 billion, yeah. things change. Nothing stays the same. So when you look at sports, the, the student-athlete model, when it started out, was a great endeavor. It made sense. But as time has moved on and the economics and the benefits – have put itself in a, in a space, in a place where you're talking billions. Um, I just think you have to compensate the guys who's going out there creating that wealth and pulling those viewers in. It just only makes sense, especially in America. You would think in America it would be the easiest place Definitely. where this transaction would take place because of the, just the whole nature of our system of you create economics and you share the wealth because there's a whole merchandising arm now like you know they have video games it's like you know there's so many lanes but just the sheer fact of the television contracts and amount of wealth that's generated so they can do it they won't do it because they don't have to do it it's like telling a telling somebody anybody that's loaded give away some money if they don't have to they're not going to that's just the nature of the wealthy ones they wealthy are do you, do you think there's a path where they they might 
be forced to because you know you have a lot of student athletes who aren't going to make it to league this might be the last chance for them to basically benefit i don't think um i don't think they're going to bend in that perspective congress will never take action in that way because every university has someone well not every university but every congressman or every senator attended some university so it's very easily for that person now to become a lobbyist for that university. Look at he got game, big state. So yeah. it never hits the floor. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the day, if it can never hit the floor, it can never come yep. to vote. So as long as lobbyists, which are senators, congressmen, et cetera, if they're representing the university, they're never going to bring that to vote. So it's going to have to fall on the education of the parents because the parents are the only ones who can truly educate the child and say, and, and come together as a collective unit and say, this is what we're gonna do for our babies. Yeah. We're gonna take the ball out of our baby's hand and we're gonna shut the system down. Now the parents can do that, but they have to be empowered and, and you don't have to worry about the 1% who have the extraordinary talent to play on the next level because 1% can't do it. It's the 90% of the players on the team that you need to go out there and to make a game. Yeah. And it's those individuals have, who have to see that this is their prime now. They have a four year window. So you're either gonna reap the benefits of your athletic prime right now, or you're not. So it's, it's really in the hands of the parents of seeing the dynamics totally different. All right, so um, just recently, and again, like I don't know how far left you want to go with the questions or anything, but just recently, and this is an NBA question, uh, the NFL settled with Colin Kaepernick uh, with that the whole suit and everything. They they speculate that the settlement was around about $80 million. What did you think? Well, first of all, what do you think the differences in the culture of the NBA versus the NFL? Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf is the modern, or Collins, the modern day mm-hmm. Abdul-Raouf. Well, I mean, obviously, the NBA, especially under Adam Silver, has a more um, open door engagement with the players. He, he really cares about what they think and how they feel. And at the same time, he has a job to do. So he does a great job of balancing both. And it's his delivery and his ability to communicate and allow players to articulate and communicate and and still, at the same time, understand what he has to do as a commissioner um, of the owners. But I, I just think he's probably the first guy to not just look at himself as the, the guardian of the game for the owners, but also for the players. I like it. Uh, Scoopy and Reg, sponsored by Catalyst, talking education, talking uh, nonprofit, and talking uh, the gold, old days of the 90s. I told you I wanted to get back to this question. You mentioned student of the game and hitting the ground. Uh, I once I had talked to Kendall Gill. He told this story about um, a time Jim Jackson was going off on Michael, scored a ton of points, and Michael said to him, you know, Jim, you talk a lot of smack for somebody who's wearing my shoes. He was wearing his Jordan Ted's. Mm-hmm. You talked about Gary Payton. You talk, we talked about Mike a little bit. Trash talking. What's the funniest thing you've heard Gary Payton say on the court? Uh, I mean, um, I, I mean, 
for me, it's, it's not so much that I'm hearing them say funny things. Okay. It's just that the mouth never stops talking. And he don't he doesn't have to have anything to do with it. It could be something else going on. And he's gonna find his way to charm that. Um so he he just understands I'm going against Kemp. I score against Kemp. I come back, I score against Kemp, and he starts screaming, All right, we going to Kemp. Ball's going into Kemp now. Sean Big Fella. So it, it was like Kemp was reserved, mm-hmm. whether it was, I'm just going to do what I do. But Kent didn't need Gary Payton sparking his fire because <laughs> I scored a few points. But that's that's Gary. He felt the need, okay, he didn't score a few points in a row. I need to get Kent fired up, get Kent to slow this dude down. So all he had to do was open his mouth. You know what I mean? And it just, you know, okay. So, get so him off it, balance. It, it, it just heats up. Gary just knows how to instigate on the court. <laughs> it doesn't have to be with him and the guy he's guarding. Anything that's going on the court. But you love it because that's why we play the game. We love that competition. And and I've never heard him get personal. Mm. I never heard him. He kept everything between the lines. It was about me and you. <laughs> he didn't have to take it off the court and include – um, your family members or nothing like that. So, you know. And if you grew up playing street ball, Gary Payton's voice was just a random voice. So it depends on how you grew up playing the game. And most most guys play inner city ball, so. You also played in Utah with Carmelo. Yes. How do he how does Carmelo and Sean Kemp differ in their approach to the game? See, I, ne- I don't know Sean Kemp's approach. Okay. Never played with him. Um, only could judge by how he steps on the court. So, obviously, he was prepared, motivated, competed at a very high level. Mm-hmm. Watching call, um, I'll say the biggest thing is he shows up every practice. He doesn't take a practice off. And that's when you really want to judge how a player sees himself. Is he still hungry? Does he – Isolate himself, figure I've already arrived. I don't need to do this. But he puts in the work. He's on the court. He's going hard. And and when you see a guy doing that, you know, you understand why they're successful. Did you ever figure out what he was whispering to the ball at the free throw line? I'll be honest with you. I think he – I think players create their own thing that will draw um, attention from the public. So he might have been saying something one time, whether it was to get him motivated, the media caught on and started saying, what are you saying to yourself at the free throw line? And he figured, you know what? I'm just going to keep just mumbling something. Because at the end of the day, I keep saying it goes back to entertainment. How And, and these guys was, was, was branding themselves before we really understood push your brand, create your brand. And it's little things like that that allows you to, to create your own image and brand. I'm at the free throw line, and I'm talking to myself. Well, like, currently, what players do you feel are doing, like, the best job of self-branding? Woo! Good question. Right now, in 2019, so I'm not going to go back. I'm just yeah. going to say 2019. 
Um, I'm going to say, I want to say Joel Embiid. Yeah. That's a good answer. Why do you say that? Because he's vocal. He's going to open his mouth. He don't run from the cameras, backs it up, and, and he will go to social media. And he loves it. He's in, he enjoys it. And if you if you really, really look at him, you can tell he has a good nature. So a lot of what he does is not, he's not doing it out of being mean-spirited. He's enjoying the game. He's enjoying the competition. And that's where, he, that's where it all derives from. Jerry Sloan was the first uh, person ever drafted by the Chicago Bulls. I remember as a kid, uh, my stepfather's from Chicago. And uh, I took, when I was a kid, I did radio with the Nets. And he was in the locker room. You would have thought that there was candy at the candy store. When he was excited, he saw Jerry Sloan. He's old school. Um, what do you remember most about uh, Jerry Sloan during your time with the Utah Jazz? Um, I, I thought he was a lot more um, – I expected. I was expecting more of a military-type person when I got there. And what I what I ran into, maybe it was that time of his career, having a more seasoned and veteran team, leadership of John Stark, Stockton and Malone, I saw him to be a far more calm personality who – I don't want to say someone who just felt he arrived, but was confident in his own skin of his own coaching ability – in that um, he he has arrived, and he didn't need to um, sort of create a, a a military mentality with grown men um, as well. So I saw him from afar in earlier years, but by the time I got there, I just saw a, um, a confident guy who encouraged his players and um, treated everybody fair. Does that Utah Jazz? Um playbook seem or feel more complex to, to play in as people made it seem during the, that 90s era? There were a lot of pick and rolls, a lot of screen and rolls, a lot of outside jumpers from the corner, um, but it seemed like it was very structured. When I look at back at the 90s, I look at the Bulls and how structured they were with the triangle offense and the Utah Jazz. looked like they ran a lot of Princeton screen, screen and rolls. What, what do you remember most about just the intricacies of, of, of playing in, in Sloan's system? I thought it was the easiest system in the world. We're just going to either set a back pick with Stockton. Call's going to come free. Or we're going to run a high pick and roll, and our shooter's just going to spot up. There's no tricks. Carl Malone goes to the box, or he sets a pick and roll, and he's the first option. So it's either one way. Either going to cross screen him to the box, he's just going to go to the box, or they're going to play out a pick and roll. I thought it was the simplest offense in the world but it was the talent and the execution and the discipline of everybody to run it the right way and be on a strain. What was Utah nightlife like in the 90s? I have no idea, man. <laughs> Everything shut down. We all went to bed. Um, I'm coming from Newark, so, you know, wherever, whatever city you go to, no matter where you go to this very day, you feel the energy of the city, and the energy of the city tells you what to do. Stay up, go to sleep. So it, the energy of the city was more. Low key. Go to work, go home, go to sleep, raise your family. So now that you're retired, besides the nonprofit, how do you spend your time? 
Oh, man. I run skill development programs, um, developing gyms, um, sports academies for athletes to come in who really want to train and learn the game the right way. Um, I got a son at Seton Hall, so I spend a lot of time, and I got an 11-year-old, so I'm engaged with him. But um, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really the, um, the basketball developing the programs, which is all year long um, when it comes to skill training in basketball. Um, it has a move from a one-season sport. Do you feel like adjusting for you, like post the game and retirement, was an easy adjustment? And do you feel like other athletes struggle with it a little bit more? It's, it's not an easy adjustment for any athlete, um, no matter how prepared they are. It is a transition from what you do every single day and what you worked on to perfect. So it's going to be a transition period. Um, for some, it's easier from the standpoint of how they accept it from a mental standpoint, how they approach it mentally. And that's the biggest challenge is the mental approach to transitioning from the game to post-career. And, and the ones that, that you see transition the easiest, um, it's all mental. So I like that leads me to another thing I was always curious about. So I mean, obviously athletes make a ton of money, right? Mm -hmm. So when you have athletes who are used to, I guess, like spending outrageously or whatever like that, on average, I think the the statistic is uh, five years after retirement, mm -hmm. most athletes are sort of like you know broke. Mm -hmm. Do you think that like you know the league should have some type of or like I mean in general different leagues should have like you know educational programs in terms of like you know finances? Why do you feel like the players like you know struggle with some of these things? Why do you think some guys do better versus other guys in terms of keeping their money and holding on to it? Um, I I think um they they do have some good programs, so I'm gonna start there. Um. I believe the ones that have the most success um, are the ones who's able to stick around longer to recover from some of their decisions. I think if you took any career path, medical, educational, engineering, technology, basketball, it doesn't matter. I think if you gave anybody in that space at that age that kind of money, they will all fall into those exact same statistics across the board. Because when you're 21, you're gonna do what a 21 mm -hmm. year old do. When you're 25, you're gonna do what a 25 year old do. And when you're 40, you're gonna do what a 40 year old do. It's just a matter of time and age. And you can give me all the education you wanna give me. Doesn't really matter. If I'm 21 and I want a Mercedes, I'm gonna get a Mercedes. Is only through time and wisdom, having been there, done that, that I don't care about a Mercedes. So it's, it's like anything in life, you know, when you're at a certain age, this is what you want. And if you, if you take away um, the dollar figure, I can assure you the same decisions the athletes make mm -hmm. every day. Man and woman makes them every single day. Why you do that? What was that? That was dumb. Why you do that? We make the same decisions. One just got more money than the other. And and there's your answer. What was the most outrageous thing you ever bought? 
A car. I, don't, I, don't, I, I didn't do yeah. anything outrageous. Yeah, all right, see. That's, nah, I, mean, I, I didn't do anything outrageous. That seems pretty lovely. Like, you need, you yeah. need a car, so. Yeah, that I bought a crazy. nice car. Yeah. Yeah. When you were in the NBA and you were a rookie, uh, did you guys have to, like, carry uh, veterans' bags? And whose rookie were you? I was no one's rookie. Um, I was – I was I'm going to say I was fortunate. I was on a team where we were loaded with one-year and second-year players. Okay. And those one-year and second-year players, um, a, a large percentage were starters and playing heavy minutes. So we didn't have a, a real heavy um, veterans team. So we didn't get that um, that veterans um, rookie tag the way other guys may have gotten it. My follow-up question. Uh, in today's NBA, you see pranks like crazy, people putting popcorn in people's cars. Craziest prank in the Orlando Magic locker room? I'm going to say this. It has something to do with Shaq. <laughs> Okay, it, we, it, I figured that. That's why it, I asked it you. Has, it has something to do with Shaq. Um, oh, God. I don't know where to begin with him. We got time. <laughs> we go rap with this. I would say, I would say with, with Shaq, gosh. I would say the best prank I've ever seen was Shaq. Okay. It was a white guy who always put the gel in his hair because it, it puts everything back in place. And when he got out the shower, Shaq hid all the gel. <laughs> so his hair was just all over the place and he cannot get his hair in order to go back out in public, greet his family and everybody, because Shaq hid all his gel. And he has to go out. And I don't, I don't know what you mean when I'm saying that hair's out of order. And it really needs that gel. He looked like the there. Statue of Liberty? Yeah. <laughs> so he couldn't get his gel. And he, he, he had no hat. And nothing was going to work. He needed his gel. Couldn't get his gel. And and he had to go out there and, and, and greet his family. And they looked at me, obviously, like, what is going on? So it, it was more so those subtle pranks like that that just... Like, come on, man. Dude need his gel, man. So he did this to a teammate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and you yeah. can't say their name. It was my man Scott Brooks. Shut up. Yeah, my he, man. God bless his soul. Scott Brooks. Yep. He had Scott Brooks out there look like the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So, only, only only person Shaq didn't pull tr tricks on was Tree Rollins. The OG Tree Rollins. Yeah. Why? But, but Shaq, I mean, he's OG. Old enough to be your dad. Yeah. yeah, and when a man is named like Tree, he yeah. gonna swing his trunk. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, but yeah, it, it was interesting. He never pulled a prank on me though. Now I was just about to ask that. Well, well, my locker was on another side, so I can always see. Plus, I always knew it was coming anyway. <laughs> so it'd be, it, it would be very, very hard to get me. Uh huh. You know what I mean? It, it'd just be difficult. Did he ever tell Scott Brooks that he hit his gel? I mean, Scott knew he hit the gel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he mean, just couldn't find it. Couldn't find it. Scott knew. Yeah. Yeah, Scott knew. Or, or you know, you're leaving the game. You're leaving the game. The game is over. You get dressed up, and you find one shoe. <laughs> and your other dress shoe is just missing. 
<laughs> it's just a little stupid stuff. Yeah, man. that would annoy the hell. Out so, of me. are we yeah. saying Dennis Scott, Mister Shoe, Nick Anderson, Mister Shoe? No, nah, Dennis Scott and Shaq was boys. Okay. So I, I don't know if Dennis was probably telling Shaq who to get. <laughs> yeah, there's like Forrest and Gump. They, they were together. Yeah, yeah. They they were road dogs. Yeah. I still want to know who Shoe is. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Yo. Sir, thank you for ending this interview on a, on a, on a funny note. Yes, sir. Uh, that was hilarious. Scott yes, Brooks and Statue of Liberty, it, it just sounds right. Yeah, man. Um, more than anything, um, I'm glad that you're doing things in the community. Where can Appreciate people find you. more information about your nonprofit? They can go to www.makemeaprodigy.com, and they can check it all out. You heard them. Appreciate I'm a, you. I'm going to go buy some hair gel now. Yeah, man. We out. All right, later. Brother, thank you. Absolutely. Yes, Jersey.